I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. According to Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, in previous years, banks in the Rio Grande Valley used to report up to a billion dollars in deposits from Mexican nationals traveling into the valley for shopping. That is no longer the case. Now, because of border insecurity, Mexican nationals fly over the Rio Grande Valley directly into Houston, San Antonio, and Dallas. Recently, the Vice President, UTRGV Governmental Affairs, Veronica Gonzalez, interviewed Congressman Vicente Gonzalez about several issues, including gun control, the citizenship question in the upcoming census count, and the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. You were recently quoted uh, as saying that you'd like to require that Mexico create a safety zone for the transportation corridor from Monterey to McAllen, such as the green zone that exists in Iraq. Could you tell us more about yes. this? Thank you, and, and thank you for having me here today, Edinburgh. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, yes, to get to the point on that, uh, what we obviously trade has been a, a huge advantage for Texas and for our region. And while we're talking about taxes and tariffs, I just don't see how we could ignore the idea of having the conversation of insecurity across our border. Uh, as you know, the major trade route from Monterrey to our borders has been a dangerous place for a lot of tourists. They're not coming here as much as they were years ago. We were getting a billion dollars a year of Mexican national deposits into McAllen banks every single year, and that's down uh, dramatically, and a lot of this is because they're flying over us, and they're going to Houston and San Antonio and Dallas, and uh, I talked to business people in Monterrey who have now sold their second home here. Uh, the island is not doing as well as it used to. The uh, retail sales are down. And I, uh, don't, I think this would be a missed opportunity while we're negotiating this trade agreement to not talk about the real insecurity that we have, especially on Highway 40, uh, and that's a major trade route. So it's not just tourism, it's also trade in general. Uh, when I met with um, Ambassador Lighthizer, who is negotiating this trade agreement, he didn't want to acknowledge this. And uh, he said, well, this is a trade agreement, it's not a security agreement. But um, I think it needs to be part of the conversation. Now, we won't be talking about this for another 10 years. And a lot, of, um, a lot of our trade is paying for security costs. And I just don't see how you can't call that a tax or a tariff. And uh, that's a real issue that I have. And even though I'm for uh, having a good trade agreement and you know, the continuation of NAFTA, we need to assure that Mexico does their part. Um, I was in Mexico City uh, in March. And I met with the administration, I met with uh, Secretary Durazo, who's the Secretary of Public Security, and he assured me that uh, he, he was going to put this road in this pilot program, this highway pilot program of security that they're working with our State Department on. And, and every 20 kilometers, there'll be a station like a cul-de-sac with a, with a station of their new national police they're forming. But they've been very slow moving on this. So just last week, I sent a letter to the ambassador and, and to the secretary uh, withholding my vote, which, you know, it's kind of blink, blink, right? We need to do this. But at the same time, you, we need to hold our feet to the fire and assure that, that they comply with what they promised in securing that highway and in securing trade to our border. Right. So is that your only objection at this point, I guess, to the USMCA passing? That's, that's my personal objection. I mean, there's, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi has her own and different members uh, across the country that have a particular industry or maybe they're getting pressure from labor. Uh, labor is not as impactful in Texas and certainly in South Texas as it is in the East Coast and West Coast. 
but uh, they certainly have are, are working out some side deals that we're still talking about. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think uh, um, Speaker Pelosi put together a committee of members that is working on some of the objections that Labor has and some other objections to assure that, um, that they can also come to the table and support the agreement. Is that right? That's correct. And she, uh, you know, she calls it getting the yes. She said, we're working on getting the yes. But I've had the Canadians in my office almost every couple of weeks. Uh, the Mexican embassies in my office as well. Uh, so there's a lot of international pressure from our neighbors to to get this done. And I think uh, at the end of the day, it will get done. But we need to we need to just make sure and iron out all the details that I think are being negotiated. Well, and that was going to be my question. Do you think it'll get done? Do you think the the votes will be there for passage? I understand the Senate will not have an issue; they will pass it. But the House, I guess, is still up in the air a little bit. Yes, but I, I really do. Um, I, I talked to some of my Democratic friends that are in like heavy labor districts in New York and California and Massachusetts, and they all seem uh, to be on board with it. So um, I think there's going to be some negotiation, that, that, uh, which is normal, that is going to continue uh, going on. And, and it's interesting because it's already been ratified through the Mexican Congress and the Canadian. So I always you know, wonder, like, okay, so what are, we, what are the side deals that we're doing if – does that have to go back to the Congress? Apparently, uh, that there's there's ways to do some amendments without them actually having to get ratified through other through uh, Canadian and Mexican Congress. So uh, it's interesting. And uh, you know, it's a we had talked about how we at the last forum we are the largest trading partner um, with Mexico and Mexico with us and. Uh, and the trillions of dollars that come across the border on a daily basis. But, of course, NAFTA is a 24-year-old agreement, and uh, I know I've changed in 24 years. I imagine you have, too, a little bit. And you probably have. Uh, no, I've it. changed quite a bit. And, and everyone in this room, I mean, if you think of where your business was 24 years ago to where it is today and all the new changes. So um, what are some of the upgrades, I guess, that we could see in USMCA? Well, some of the changes that I think we're going to be seeing on e-commerce uh, now we'll be taxing um, products that get take, brought in uh, on the value of over $117 U.S. and $150 of products that go into Canada uh, through E-Trade. That's something that wasn't there before. The automobile comp uh, industry is probably the most impacted because the, uh, the national content is going for 60 uh, 62 and a half to 75 percent. So I think that there, um, in fact, we had uh, some Koreans up in Washington recently saying that we're manufacturing some vehicles in Mexico that it may be uh, that it may not be a feasible deal for them anymore with just that 10 percent or 12 percent change. So there's, you know, we're still dealing with a lot of different issues. Um, another issue is now we're going to be able to get our dairy products into Canada. Uh, so there's, uh, at the end of the day, it's not a major change, but there's there are tweaks. You know, it's, it's, it gives the president an opportunity to own the new deal, I guess. Right? Sure, sure. And, of course, with technology, all the changes, IT, all of that has to get upgraded as well. That's right. Well, let's talk about something that's been, um, unfortunately, has been in the news quite a bit lately, and that's gun control. Um, as you know, we had a recent mass shooting in El Paso that resulted in the deaths of more than 20 people. And just days after that, the shooter in Odessa that shot seven people and wounded 22 others. With the recent mass shootings, um, several Democratic presidential candidates are embracing mandated buybacks of assault weapons, AR-15s and AK-47s, a proposal that uh, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Com uh, Senator Kamala Harris, and Senator Cory Booker have all supported. 
Where do you stand on the mandatory buybacks of assault weapons? Do I have to answer that? <laughs> You're among friends. That's a tough issue, and that's something that we need to continue to consider on military-grade weapons. Uh, but I can tell you what I'm for immediately. I'm for limiting magazine capacity. I'm for doing uh, more intense background checks. I'm for uh, regulating private sales. Uh, just about a few weeks ago, I was at the gun, sh at the gun show that came to, to the Valley, and I bought a, a shotgun there for $400. It was, it was like buying a, a, you know, a, a screwdriver at the hardware store. And I, I give the lady my money. She asks for my driver's license. She looks at it, gives it back to me, gives me the gun. I thought, okay, something's got to be wrong with this. Um, so certainly we need to regulate that type of sales and maybe private sales as well. Um, so that would be more like selling a car. You'd have to get a title. You'd go, you'd go to a gun dealer that's licensed, and, and they'd run a background check on you. And, and I think we can come up with reasonable ideas. I also think we need to look at society and, and ask ourselves, what has changed from the 80s? These AK-47s were around then and uh, in the 90s. And, and what, what has changed that we have such a dramatic increase in these mass shootings? What's, what has changed socially? And I think that's something that we need to study and figure out and, and see what is happening in society that we can impact through policy. That's uh, that's very interesting because I think you, you are right. I hadn't thought about it in that way that um, a lot of these, what's the law today has been the law for many years on these sales, but yet we see so much of an increase today and hate crimes and things of that nature. And so what are we doing as a society that is causing people to uh, feel the need to to um, engage in this type of behavior. So, so while I'm, I'm for uh, you know, regulating arms sales and all stuff, we also, I think we need to go beyond that. Yeah, the stranger to stranger sales, um, right. and, which I think is something even the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, who has yeah. been um, a very, very strong supporter of the NRA, has, has backed the, uh, the background checks on the stranger to stranger. I think it's starting to pick up a lot of, of traction. Uh, but also, yes, studying what can we do as a society to decrease these number of shootings. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, let's get on to the subject of the census, which I think is no secret that in Hidalgo County, um, Cameron County, the whole Rio Grande Valley, we were severely undercounted 10 years ago. And um, to avoid that happening again, there's been a countywide, really a, a regional um, advocacy of complete count committees. I know the university has one, and, and we're part of several with the city and the counties. Um, so what would you tell us about some of the programs? And I think people have some general idea, but tell us about some of the programs that benefit from an accurate count. Okay. Well, um, one of the things I'm the most proud of the work I've done in Congress is to bring this uh, very first census office to the Rio Grande Valley. So we've never had our own census office. This is the first one. Terrific. And I think that... This They were doing this out of San Antonio, and you know when you're doing this from a remote location, you never do a good job. And for every thousand res homes that go undercounted, we lose $150 million over a 10-year period. And we had thousands of homes that went undercounted the last go-around. So we've, we've, I think we've, we're trying to entrench ourselves in this idea and get everybody counted, get everybody, uh, get them, make sure that there's enough information out there, they're, they're on notice. Uh, they'll start, I mean, by now there's already awareness. Uh, you'll see some PSAs out there and some, some information in the mail. You'll start uh, getting emails, I think, in March. Mm -hmm. uh, census day is April the 1st. And uh, that entire month, you'll be 
um, being asked to sign up and register either uh, online or by mail. And after, I think it's April 28th. April 27th. April 27th. Okay, I knew it was towards the end of the April. After that, people will be knocking on your door if you haven't done it. Uh, so it's the law. You should, you must uh, comply. This is the only way that we know exactly how many people live in our county. It impacts our federal funding and it impacts, uh, you know, municipal planning, county planning. Uh, there are a lot, of, you know, there's a lot of benefit to knowing uh, the growth in our area, which has been tremendous. Thank God. Absolutely, and I think. You know, we have our area, we still have a lot of people here that are on Medicaid. We've got uh, Medicare as we get older, Medicare is big. All of those are funded by census. Uh, the student loans programs. That's right. Yeah, Education. the student loan programs are census. Infrastructure. Dependent. Infrastructure, um, the SNAP and CHIP, right. the health, Children's Health Insurance. Of course, highway planning, which I know has been, and uh, we have our, our transportation chairman here, Representative Canales, but we we're need to make sure get the money funds. to spend. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so all of these things, I mean, the, the what we do with drainage, and just everything right. is impacted by census, right? So, That's right. It's, so we want to make sure that we're all counted and all our families are counted. So we, it's important to let everyone uh, know that uh, the citizenship question is not going to be on this time around, thank God. Um, I, I, there was a study out there that found that when you add the citizenship question, 35% of Latinos do not fill it out. So uh, we're very happy. And it also impacts redistricting. For uh, members of Congress, for state reps, Senate, state senators, uh, our districts will change depending on the population growth, and uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, we could gain another congressional, congressional seat, seat, right? The, the state of Texas is supposed to gain about four seats. California is losing a few. New York's losing a few. Uh, we should get three or four seats uh, in the state, so our state has been robustly growing. And I know that this, uh, right now, everybody is focused on census all around the state, so we won't, if we don't take an active role in getting counted, we're going to be even more severely, I think, um, impacted because other places are also, in fact, there's some areas that are dedicating a lot of money towards census, just to census. I think it's a good investment because yeah. you get a return on this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're, if, if with an accurate county, you, you're, you're sure to get, you know, your, your slice, your fair slice of the American pie. Yeah, that's right. Well, speaking of getting your fair slice of the American pie, let's talk about tax cuts. And this is going to be a little bit in the weeds, but hopefully you can explain it to us in a way that we I'm not an accountant, but I, I, I know some of the changes that I can tell you about. <laughs> um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was the bill that set forth a plan that was supposed to simplify the tax code and change the tax rate for individuals and businesses. It was signed into law in December 2017 to take effect January of 2018. President Trump said he considered this very much a bill for the middle class and a bill for jobs. And many argued that the plan would add $1.5 trillion to the national debt and that it wouldn't really benefit the middle class, especially since the changes affecting individuals would expire after 2025. So could you tell us, did you support the tax bill? I didn't. And it's added a trillion dollars to our deficit to this day. Um, and I didn't. And I was for uh, a corporate tax cut because we weren't competitive internationally. That's just a fact. Uh, we were at, at a 35% uh, tax bracket at the highest point, and most of Europe and Asia were in the 15 to 20 to, to 25%. So we certainly needed to come, come down, and, and I thought more like 25% would have been fair. Um, and the reason I voted against it because our individual uh, tax cuts for average hardworking Americans where you, you, you got a few points deducted depending where you were on the scale, uh, has a sunset clause. So corporations get that tax cut forever. 
we only get that tax cut until 2026. Uh-huh. So the average working American uh, didn't have that same guarantee that we gave corporations, and I thought that wasn't fair. And I think your office sent some information. Let's see if I can find it here. It was towards the back on on the um, scale, I guess, of the tax cuts. Let's see if we can find it because I think it's always important. You got the devil's in the there details, as right. they say, right? I think this should show up as well there. And so um, the corporate rate at the bottom, 35% was what it was. Now it's 21%. So that's a huge de- uh, decrease, I guess, on their tax rate. Uh, what about for individuals? Explain those numbers there. Okay. So individuals, if you were – those were the, the, the tax rate were 10%. 10% stays the same. If you were at 15, uh, you go down to, to 12. If you were at 25%, you went down to 22 uh, the 28% went down to 24, uh, 33 went down to 1 point, 35 stayed the same. And if you were on the very top uh, bracket at 39.6, you went down to 37%. So you, you save a little bit, but uh, the cor- uh, corporate tax rates had the biggest and permanent uh, tax cuts in this, in this bill. And uh, I think more needed to be done for the middle class, and that's why I didn't uh, support this bill. And I think we've got it right here, too. You said, in, in fact, there was a personal exemption of $4,050 that existed before the no that lost, yeah. so, so, so really that tax cut maybe didn't impact you because of the exemption that you lost. Right. Well, so it's a little of the, the robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's right. <laughs> there you go. Um, and um, I wanted to also mention, because you were talking about corporations, the tax, what they call uh, repatriation of corporate money. Could you explain to everybody what that means? Yeah, so this is uh, multinational corporations that have, you know, trillions of dollars of, of resources uh, parked overseas. And uh, so we, we, we had an, a plan to try to incentivize these corporations to bring these funds back to the United States, which is a great idea in theory, but it's not as easy as we're finding out. Uh, so we, we did a flat repatriation tax of 15.5%. It used to be you paid whatever your taxes were in a foreign country, which some of them were very low, and then you paid the difference when you got back, when you brought the rest of your money back home. You paid the difference because there was an international tax treaty with these countries, most of them. Under this plan, you just pay a flat 50%. And now there's this holiday that uh, Trump is talking about and doing a flat 10%. And that's because uh, we were supposed to bring home about $2.5 trillion dollars but we've only repatriated $465 billion, uh, which sounds like a lot of money, but really it's just in overall it's just 20%. My first term in office when I met with uh, President Trump for the very first time, the whole meeting was about trying to pass this corporate, uh, this corporate tax cut and repatriate uh, American resources overseas. And during that meeting, him and his top advisors – all were trying to preach to us that we would repatriate all this, uh, you know, 90% of these resources within a year. And uh, here we are two years later, a year and a half later, and really it's, uh, it's not happening as easily as people expected. These corporations are investing a lot and maybe getting more of a benefit in other Western countries, and they're just not bringing that. And it's really only benefiting about five. That's right. The largest five companies. So, uh, the, the Apple, I guess, Microsoft, uh, maybe multinational uh, oil companies. Yes. The yeah, pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. IBM. So, it really is for the for your average person. Is it doing anything for them? The repatriation? No. So, the, the idea is that you would bring that 
those resources home and reinvest them here. I mean, we did get $465 billion. Uh, this 10% prop proposition, then it'll be a holiday, so it'll be like six months probably that they'll, that bring they'll make it. Home. Yeah, bring your money home. They used to do that for people who, who hadn't, that were evading taxes and, and hiding in foreign countries. They'd give you a, a, a kind of like an amnesty if you. You know, bring, your, bring those money. Like when you don't pay a parking ticket. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, on a larger scale. So, so, you know, I think it's a good idea to try to bring the money home. We just can't, uh, you know, give the farm away. Right, right. And uh, another topic that's been in the news quite a bit is the tariffs. Um, President Trump first began imposing tariffs on Chinese imports last July. And he's increased uh, his tariffs on $250 billion in Chinese goods from 10% to 25%. And Beijing counterpunched by taxing uh, $110 billion of American products. Starting September 1st, Trump announced a new 10% tariff on $300 billion of imports that fall under what's known as list four tariffs that Apple said would affect all of Apple major products. In fact, the new tariff reportedly will have considerably greater impact on Americans and their wallets. So um, tell us, in a simple terms here, what are the tariffs designed to achieve? Well, I think it's, it's probably twofold. One is it brings revenues to the country, to, the, to our government. But also, uh, we use it to try to get a, a fair playing field with other countries in terms of what are they charging us, especially when we're talking about free trade and trade agreements. Uh, depending who we're dealing with or who we're trading with, we may have a varying... Uh, Tariff for the for certain products. We also do it to protect industries. Sometimes uh, we'll put a tariff on on certain goods with certain countries to protect certain industries. The vice president, UTRGV governmental affairs, Veronica Gonzalez, interviewed Congressman Vicente Gonzalez during a recent luncheon at the Edinburgh Conference Center. Thank you, Ron Whitlock reports for that audio.